I'm Sean Graham, and what's old as news this week is race and sports. Over the last few years, the discussion surrounding race and sports has become ever more heightened, if you could ever argue that it was not heightened, with athletes starting with Colin Kaepernick taking a knee during the national anthem, through discussions surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic, and then following the murder of George Floyd. The polarization that we've seen culturally in North America has brought itself to sports in a more heightened way than certainly was the case in the early part of the century, at least in terms of broad public discussion. And one of the things opponents frequently say to criticize athletes who put forth strong political opinions or political views is that sports should just be sports and that politics should not be brought in to sports. But a deep examination of the history of sports, particularly high-level professional sports in North America, would reveal that there's always been a political bent to sports, in particular surrounding questions of race and racism. You go back to athletes like Joe Lewis, Jesse Owens, Jackie Robinson, Willie O'Ree, their stories, for as great as they were in their respective sports, must be told within the context of the racial barriers that were put in their way and the work that those athletes, along with thousands of others, did to confront and dismantle those racial barriers. And while that does happen certainly on the professional level a lot, it happens at the community level as well. And that is the subject of a new book by Ian Kennedy entitled Shining Light on Race and Sport. And in this book, Ian, who is a writer for the Hockey News, among other publications, looks at the Chatham-Kent community in southwestern Ontario, which you may be familiar with as it was a terminus of the Underground Railroad. It was also where Ferguson Jenkins, the Hall of Fame pitcher for the Chicago Cubs, is from, and how athletes from the community use sports to confront dismantle, challenge racism and racial barriers throughout society. It really is a wonderful book looking at people like Ferguson Jenkins, like the Chatham Colored All-Stars, a a very famed baseball team, but also some prominent community members, including members of First Nations that are within the broad Chatham-Kent community. Really wonderful book. And I was thrilled to have the opportunity to talk with Ian all about it. So let's get right into my discussion with Ian Kennedy. All right. Ian Kennedy joins me now from Chatham-Kent. Ian, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Sean. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, As I said in the intro, the book is On Account of Darkness, and this is your debut book. Uh, So Ian, let's get into what the book is about, uh, the history of sports and uh, minorities in Chatham-Kent, and what brought you to this particular topic in the first place? Well, I've been uh, writing about sports for quite some time. Uh, Right now, I write for the Hockey News, uh, Yahoo Sports, and a variety of other publications. But it has become such a a hot topic in the world of how sports can kind of cross the border into social issues and how there, there really is no detachment point between those two and whether that or not that's uh, the ongoing homophobia and transphobia that we're seem to be talking about a little bit more right now, or the history of systemic racism and oppression and being from Chatham Kent, where we have 
a rich history of black settlement. Uh, we have two indigenous communities. We had a major role in the internment of Japanese Canadians during uh, World War II. Uh, there were so many stories historically that I should have known about as a sports fan and sports writer. And when I started discovering them every single day, I, I would research, interview, whatever it might have been, and left that talk or that day going, huh, I had no idea that this famous athlete, this influential person, this event was connected to my community. And I should have known that and I didn't. And so I approached it from a, uh, not a storyteller's standpoint, but from a, a story preservationist, um, from a history preservationist approach. Um, and then through that process, really started tying it to those social issues and making personal connections and community connections. But it was a pandemic project, you know, it was something <laughs> when the time presented itself, uh, it came to be. Um, it was kind of fate how I actually got the publishing deal. I was sitting in the Black History Museum here in Chatham-Kent and a publishing company just happened to reach out to Tidewater Press about uh, wondering if there was anyone writing about the Chatham Colored All-Stars baseball team that uh, is so famous for their 1934 yeah. history. Uh, but that was, uh, I was just sitting there researching the exact team and people that were involved with it when that came through. And, um, you know, uh, a little over a year later, here we are. Yeah, so that, uh, you know, works out really well. You love when those things are very serendipitous like that. But, but before we get into some of the, the specific teams, Let's talk about Chatham-Kent a little bit. It's a, a place I've spent some time in my life, mostly on baseball tournaments uh, as a kid. Wheels in was super fun when I was a kid uh, out there in Chatham. And I associate it kind of on that line between where you'll see like Blue Jays hats and Tigers hats uh, down there in Southwest Ontario, kind of on that breaking point to a certain extent, but also a little bit of uh, Canada's tobacco road uh, of sorts. And certainly the history of it, the popular history of it, is that it was a terminus of the Underground Railroad uh, during the uh, slavery period in the United States. So what is the community there like? And, and what is the historical presence of everything from that 19th century era that uh, I think if people know Chatham-Kent, that's probably what they best know it for? Yeah, so there is a number of uh, things that we would be known for. Of course, agriculture is the biggest one. So your tobacco road, uh, we are probably the leading producers of tomatoes, carrots, Brussels sprouts, you know, you could name it. And in Canada, we or North America wide, we're probably one of the number one producers of those. Uh, but in terms of the Underground Railroad, you are correct that we had uh, not just one, but two major sites here, um, which turned into three settlements, uh, plus a little bit here and there, but uh, the main one being the Don settlement that has gone down, uh, you know, historically, which was formerly called Uncle Tom's Cabin, but we now have uh, renamed that here uh, because of the racist connotations that come along just with that, that term and stereotype um, after Josiah Henson, who was the founder of that community. Uh, and we also had the Elgin settlement, which is located uh, at Buxton community here, which we have the Buxton National Historic Monument and site and museum as well. So those were two very prominent places, but Chatham-Kent also was essential in the organization of resistance and of, uh, you know, freedom seekers uh, 
the you know the the raid on Harper's Ferry, which is considered one of the first battles of the Civil War, was planned in Chatham. Uh, it was you know occurred here uh, with John Brown and uh, many of the other uh, freedom seekers and and allies and and people that were working to emancipate uh, uh, enslaved people. So that you know those historical connections run so deep, and I could list. A dozen of them for you that uh, if if you were a, a you know late 1800s early 1900s um, historic black figure you probably were here at some point uh, you know Frederick Douglass and people like that that you were probably involved in Chatham Kent at some point uh, also we have a vast history of uh, some of the indigenous topics that were here whether that was uh, Chief Tecumseh, who, you know, was a major figure in uh, the, the War of 1812, uh, and whether or not uh, Black Hawk, people like that, that were so important in fighting those battles and working to have Indigenous sovereignty still in place. Uh, it all happened here in Chatham-Kent. So in terms of how that connected to the book, it was an example in some ways of not just the history, but the context surrounding the history, because as much as we praise Chatham Kent for being the spot of black settlement and where a lot of that anti-slavery work happened, there was immense resistance to black settlement here. And there was immense racism toward indigenous people here. And we had five Japanese internment camps here during World War II. And we have are kind of a microcosm of Canada as a whole, where we present ourselves as one thing, but the facts, the context around it are quite different when you look at it, that we played such a role in upholding those oppressive barriers, not just breaking them down and Canada, we present ourselves as this all-welcoming, all-encompassing country where we don't have the same problems that exist, uh, you know, about a 45 minutes away from Chatham Kent <laughs> in the United States. But uh, we do have all of yeah. those things, and we have had all of those things. And uh, that's what I tried to show in the book through the lens of sport um, while, you know, recapping all of these major historical figures and incidents uh, because at one time or another, they all do have... Uh, sporting connections, whether it's Josiah Henson, who founded the Don Settlement, was a, uh, he loved horse racing and breeding horses for that purpose. And uh, uh, some of the, the race horses that he bred are the, the direct lines and lineage of, of uh, you know, the most famous horses that are out there. So th there's connections to all of it. And uh, um, I found it fascinating doing that and seeing, uh, you know, not just the history, but how it all tied to every aspect of life, including sport. Well, so let's get into sport and how sport plays into some of these discussions. One of the things that I've been entertained by over the past three, four years is more and more athletes are using their platforms to talk about social issues is the pushback saying that we have to get back to when sports was apolitical. And I just think of, yes, all those very apolitical athletes like uh, Jesse Owens, uh, Jackie Robinson, Muhammad Ali, who are only known for what they did in their sport and nothing outside of sport at all. Like, like So the, the argument that sports has been apolitical 
doesn't necessarily hold up to any sort of reality. But how does sport play out specifically within Chatham-Kent, within these communities and, and addressing, broadly speaking, some of the larger societal issues that you were talking about? Well, absolutely. The, the sport has not just been political, but it actually has been weaponized at times to push the agendas or the policies or to uphold those barriers. And in Chatham-Kent, um, a lot of that, you know, we had some of the very earliest um, black athletes that made uh, significant contributions. Our first ever recorded organized baseball game in Chatham-Kent uh, was in 1871 and it featured an all black baseball team and that history in chatham kent has moved forward uh through teams like that prominent chatham colored all-stars who were the first ever all black baseball team and i believe the first the only all black baseball team ever to win a provincial championship in canada uh, which they did in 1934 at a time when racism was absolutely rampant everywhere in canada uh, you know there really was no way to disconnect that there but they represented so much in terms of the way that sport can be used to bridge barriers because people looked at chatham and the chatham all-stars as representatives of the community but also the inequities where when they won that championship they came back to chatham were paraded down the main street but the next day were unable to access any of the businesses or restaurants or hotels on that main street. So it's really, um, you know, there's so many portions of that that represent our history. Um, Dresden, Ontario being where Josiah Henson founded the Dawn Settlement was actually a location where much of our Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the, the, the issues that surface there with people being refused service because they were, they were black, um, surrounded in that community. That's where many of those fights happened. Uh, you can go back into historical magazines and newspapers and find that, you know, in the 1950s, uh, after it was banned that people could not discriminate based on race, Dresden continued to do that. And, uh, you know, the headlines read Jim Crow lives here and things like that in Dresden, and it almost always still circles around to people that played sports and tried to break those barriers through sport um, unsuccessfully at times. But many of our prominent athletes here in Chatham-Kent uh, have those, those lines, the, the lineage uh, from the Chatham-Colored All-Stars in 1934. Uh, there was a man named Ferguson Jenkins Sr., um, who his son obviously is Fergie Jenkins, who was the first ever Canadian inducted to the Canadian Baseball Hall of or the, the Baseball Hall of Fame, not just the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. Um, you, you know, famed had a, a statue of himself uh, erected outside of Wrigley Field in Chicago this year. Uh, you know, we have just so many Ed Penance, who uh, was a baseball player from Wapool Island First Nation here that that uh, borders our community, uh, was often considered the first Indigenous baseball player in in the major leagues um, you know there's debate around that because of a racist term called blunt quantum that uh, would say that he was only the first full-blooded indigenous person which is of course in itself a horrific way to refer to any human being yeah. um, Jackie Robinson you know he obviously broke the color barrier in uh, in major league baseball but he probably wouldn't have been able to do that without a man named Wendell Smith who is a sports writer from Pittsburgh whose father grew up here in 
just outside of Dresden, and then became the personal chef of Henry Ford, um, bringing his family to the United States, where Wendell uh, wanted to play baseball, was a great baseball player, and of course heard the same kind of feedback that if his skin color were different, he would have been a major leaguer as well. And so much of the resistance that we've seen to racism, to oppression, to those barriers that existed was fought by people that had roots here. And there's a lot of pride in that, in our community that we have that, but also all of those people faced immense levels of racism. Um, You know, I could throw out many of the names that are in this book, Vicky Sunahara, who was a Canadian Olympian, gold medalist, world champion. Her father lived here in Blenheim, um, which is a a smaller community in Chatham-Kent. Bob Azumi, who's probably the most famous Canadian fisherman of all time. uh, His his father was here and his father found this community by being sent here to work building roads in Rondo Provincial Park as part of being a Japanese Canadian that was interred. And, you know, Bob grew up here as well and faced all of those, uh, the same racist stereotypes and, um, you know, being called names and, and having to overcome those things to be where he is. But there, there are so many connections to this area that represent Canada as a whole. And that's why I think, you know, most people, if you ask them where Chatham Kent was on a map, they would never yeah. be able to give you that answer. But the historical significance of this portion of Canada has really been overlooked in terms of social progress, uh, you know, progress in terms of um, the history of racism in Canada mm-hmm. and in terms of athletic history as well. So what is it about sports do you think allows for there to be such a, a prominent place for moving on these social issues, addressing things like like racism and, and discrimination? Now, one of the theories that often gets thrown out is that ideally sports is entirely merit based, that when you're in a competitive environment at the highest levels, you know, if, if you're Jackie Robinson and you can hit, you can hit and you can't really hide that. And once people are given an opportunity and it becomes merit-based, then they prove that, well, I'm I'm a really good athlete and it becomes an environment where discrimination can be openly challenged. Do you buy into that theory that sports being competitive on the field, you can plainly see who wins, who loses, uh, who's better than somebody else, that, that that level of competition, that type of competition, which is different from say economic competition where it's not necessarily all out there on an even playing field. Do you buy into that theory or, or do you have some other explanation for why sports has historically been such an important place to have these types of uh, discriminatory practices challenged openly? Well, I think that uh, sports has been driven by economics and finances forever. Um, so if an owner sees that there's an opportunity for a competitive advantage, then they might be willing to uh, break some of those barriers. But sport, is it's a false narrative that, you know, merit-based success exists. Uh, and I'll give you an example. One of the baseball players from that 1934 Colored All-Stars, his name was Wilford Boomer Harding. And he was not just a great baseball player, but he was an excellent hockey player as well. And in 1946, he, uh, he had been deployed in World War II, and he ended up playing hockey in Europe with many members of the Detroit Red Wings, Montreal Canadiens, uh, New York Rangers on this 
touring army team. And when he came back, one of the players from the Detroit Red Wings recommended him to the, the organization. So they decided that they were going to sign him to this Detroit Auto Club, which was a farm team for the Red Wings. Um, when they found out he was black, they immediately traded him to the Windsor Staffords. And on that team, uh, Boomer was not only a groundbreaker, but uh, you know he also faced many barriers as well. Two years before that, in 1944, he tried to go to uh, Detroit's Olympia Stadium, which was the home of the Red Wings at the time. And he wanted to go public skating with his family and was told that public meant white and they were turned away. And there's many of those stereotypes around black people um, related to hockey, related to swimming, that they're unable. And it's not that they're unable. That is so false that uh, uh, I think we can all understand that. It's that the access to sport was restricted. If you can't go to an arena, if you can't go to a public pool, if you can't swim at a public beach, uh, you can't learn those skills and you can't pass those skills generationally to your children and your grandchildren. And so that's why we see a historic lack of representation in those types of sports, regardless of ability. So Boomer Harding played one season for the Windsor Staffords. He found out very quickly after scoring two goals in his first games that uh, he would never be allowed to score a hat trick because the owner of that club at the time gave a fancy fedora, you know, the big hats to anyone on the team that scored a hat trick. And every time that Boomer scored two goals in the game, he was benched for the remainder of the game and never saw the ice again. So he finished, I think, third or something like that on the team, never being able to score. He would only try and score in the third period because if he got benched at that point, he was missing a minimal portion of the game. Right. So sport has open doors for people like Ferguson Jenkins that uh, you know came out of here. He was a, a revered athlete in Chatham-Kent. He faced, in his own recollection, very little racism in Chatham until he went to the United States and then faced significant racism. Uh, so he was one of those people that kind of used sport to overcome. Right. But... Traditionally, that was not the case. And sport, as I said, has been used as a weapon. Uh, the one historical example I love to give to people when I'm talking about this is at residential schools where the introduction of hockey was used to make Indigenous youth feel more Canadian. And I can use air quotes when I say feel more Canadian because I don't know what that means. Mm -hmm. um, but to strip the traditional sports and games and identity that was held uh, in, in indigenous communities and to make them feel quintessentially Canadian through the most Canadian thing that we have at times, which is hockey. So there's both sides to that debate, which you brought up, you know, merit-based, absolutely. Uh, even the Chatham Colored All-Stars, when they made the provincial championships for playoffs, they dropped the term colored from their name and they went by the Chatham All-Stars to attempt to fool or surprise people until they actually showed up on the baseball diamond to play uh, that they were an all-black baseball team. Wow. Yeah, and, and in terms of the, because you mentioned the residential schools, uh, another interesting story for that, it's not Chatham-Kent, but Fred uh, Saskamoose, uh, his story is is in line with that. Uh, to a certain extent, uh, he had a pretty successful career, but one of the things that comes out in his story is that the residential school uh, where he was was using the team's success to show the community that 
hey, look at what we're doing. They used it almost promotionally. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, yeah, the, the idea of weaponizing sport, uh, yeah, for sure, uh, it comes up a lot. Uh, and it does raise the question uh, with respect to the book and the athletes that you're looking at. Is there a difference that you've noticed in the profiles of the type of sports? So baseball, early 20th century, arguably the most important sports in North America. Is there a more prominent role for athletes in that sport versus some of the more niche sports, if you will? And as things change and some sports become more popular, others potentially less popular, uh, does that impact the role of those athletes that you're profiling, basically the general interest in the sports that they're playing? Well, the book itself features a wide spread of sports from horse racing to swimming to cricket to hockey to baseball to lacrosse it, it's all there and originally you know as we're talking about crossing into the 1900s a sport like cricket was actually probably the most prominent well-played popularized sport that existed at least in Ontario but uh, you know we had a Canadian national team that was doing very well and and players from this area were going to that but at the time cricket was seen as a gentleman's game. And if you can read between, you know, the lines of what that meant, it, it meant English upper-class wealthy white. And there are newspaper articles after newspaper articles from our area at the time that when baseball started to become a game here, uh, it was referred to as the degenerates game. Hmm. And as I mentioned earlier, the first ever recorded baseball game in our community in 1871 was played by an all-black baseball team. And so that battle line was formed very quickly between a number of sports. Um, and horse racing here was a surprising one that was uh, had a very prominent black history. Our Dresden Raceway that uh, still exists to this day has, a, uh, has started holding a black history event once a year um, to honor those families and those racers. But again, those were the types of sports along with boxing that at that time were used uh, quite often on plantations by slave owners, um, you know, that would, they would use those sports for entertainment. And uh, um, one of the people in the book, a man named Arthur Pelkey, who was a boxer here uh, was a champion. And at one point in time, he was referred to as the great white hope. And that meant that his job was to vanquish the best boxer in the world, Jack Johnson, uh, who is a black man, and to claim the sport back for white people. And, you know, we've probably heard, so a lot of people have probably heard that term, great white hope, and have no idea what it actually means, but it's tied to uh, to boxing in the, in the early 1900s. Um, and again, just kind of that... Uh, the divide between different sports. And then boxing was used prominently as a spot of uh, protest, whether it was Joe Lewis or Muhammad Ali. Uh, baseball, we saw it through, you know, Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby and uh, even the all-black baseball leagues that existed in teams. It, it was a more accessible sport because you could play it just about anywhere, you know, much like soccer nowadays um, compared to hockey where lots of facilities were needed. Um, and lacrosse being another one with that, that lacrosse was actually um, claimed by white Canadians as our national sport is in an attempt to fill vacant arenas as arenas moved indoors. 
uh, in the summer months and uh, really appropriated that game that never existed indoors, was never an indoor game to be played for competitive nature. It was really considered the creator's game, a medicine that was a healing cultural uh, community based game. So, and now it's being reclaimed by, uh, you know, different nations that are hosting their own national teams, because of course we refer to first nations as nations. And so those groups are using sport now as protest to bring back the roots of it and to tie it to culture again and to reclaim not just sport, but historical culture around the significance of the game. Um, and so it's hard to overlook things like baseball versus cricket. Um, you know, I know you're a curling fan and, and again, another indoor ice game wasn't originally, but, uh, was definitely, you know, a prominently white sport uh, based on the, the, where it originated and who played it and for what purposes it was played. Um, and all of those things tie together very tightly. So yeah, there's, there's no disconnect between, um, those developments and sport. Yeah. And the, the boxing example is very interesting. So the professionalization of boxing around the turn of the 20th century, and you could throw Larry Gaines uh, from Toronto into to the list that you, you threw out as well of, of kind of prominent individuals who weren't quite given a, a chance uh, to compete at the highest level. So yeah, boxing is a great case study, great example. Certainly, as you said, hot, great examples in, in hockey and baseball as well. So, you mentioned that there's a lot of athletes here. You've mentioned a, a bunch already. Is there one story that surprised you that uh, a person who you didn't know about uh, what their journey was, what, what their story was that really, because I, I think some people, at least people who've grown up and been around Southern Ontario may have heard of the Chatham Colored All-Stars. I think most baseball fans would have at least uh, heard of Fergie Jenkins, uh, but is there one that really surprised you as somebody who's from the area and is doing the, was doing this research uh, on the All-Stars originally, like, like just one story or, or a bunch of stories perhaps that really stood out to you as being surprising? There are so many. Um, <laughs> it, it, one that, that really sticks out to me, not a person that was born in Chatham-Kent, but uh, a person that played here. Uh, for the Chatham Maroons was a man named George Chin. And in 1944, uh, George and his brothers were invited to try out for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Obviously, George was uh, a Chinese Canadian. Uh, he was one of uh, like 11 family members from Lucknow, Ontario. And he was a fabulous hockey player. By all rights, uh, everyone at the Toronto Maple Leafs tryouts, which happened in Owen Sound that year, thought that he was skill-wise very capable of playing in the league. And of course, uh, he didn't. Uh, that that took uh, four more years for the first person of color to play in the National Hockey League. But he had a larger cultural impact than I think many people know. And that came through a man named Paul Henderson, who of course scored that famous 1972 Summit Series goal. But Paul Henderson also grew up in Lucknow and he was coached by the Chin family uh, through his entire childhood. And the Chin family gave Paul Henderson his first ever set of hockey equipment. And in the basement of the Chin's family restaurant in Lucknow, Ontario, the floor would flood and in the winter months it would freeze and kids would go down there and work on their hockey skills. And that is where Paul Henderson found his love wow. for the game of hockey. And without the Chin family, who we don't know anything about, 
most people. If you said the name George Chin, there would be a tiny handful of people that would ever be able to place that. Uh, you know, Paul Henderson might not have been Paul Henderson that we know. Yeah. And uh, so George Chin, though, did go on to play, you know, some successful hockey. He's considered one of the best ever to play for the University of Michigan in the NCAA level. But that's one. The other one is a much more uh, niche name or, or person, I guess, that uh, a man named Bill Sands, who I met here. And uh, I only knew of Bill because I had read that he uh, was taken to the Mohawk Institute Residential School, an Indigenous man from Wampalawan First Nation. And as I got to know him, it turned out that he's probably one of the most legendary hunting and fishing guides. Um, that they're, you know, he's he's led duck hunting trips for several presidents, prime ministers. Um, Share Ted Nugent, uh, you know, uh, Gordie Howe, Alex Del Vecchio, Bobby Orr. Um, if you if you wanted to find a person in the world that wanted to hunt or fish, they've probably been with Bill at some point. But his story took me through so many different levels, being from Wallaceburg, Ontario, which was my hometown, um, and a very racist community towards Indigenous people because we bordered shared schools with people from Wapalaan First Nation and talking to Bill about his residential school experience where he played hockey and the only entertainment that they got was sport and that he got to watch once a week uh, Hockey Night in Canada again to you know show the Canadian culture but then through his childhood where he raced uh, these indigenous spirit horses which almost went extinct um, and are now coming back and I got to go with Bill and walk through the bush on Wapalawan First Nation and learn from him and connect to him in that way. And it was a really powerful experience for me. And I think that's a portion of history um, that I f came to love because I'm not a nonfiction reader. I was never really wanted to be a nonfiction writer. But when I interacted with the people and heard the oral history and had the opportunity to keep the oral history alive and feel the nuance and the emotion and the see the tears running down someone's face as they recalled history. It really brought it to meaning and to life for me. And so for myself learning, uh, Bill will always hold a very crucial point in that journey for myself of finding out, like I said, not just remembering the dates and the stats and the facts, but knowing that because of this and because of this, we now have this system of government or we have this mm -hmm. system of policy or, um, you know, we've changed in this way and society has evolved because of this. And uh, those points for me, I just can't overlook. And it was his story that if anyone does pick up the book, I think you'll be impacted by it as well because uh, it was very raw and real and his recollection was very vivid of the things he was able to recall. And, you know, those the tiniest moments, whether it was him carving his name on, on a brick uh, behind the Mohawk Institute, um, just in the book, I feel like they hold people um, and it might not seem when I say that right now, it might not seem significant at all. But if you read the, the passages that uh, involve that emotion that he felt doing that, um, it is significant. And I think that's, you know, other than the, the big stories of people like the Paul Hendersons and how they tie into this all, um, 
those things stick with you and that micro history, not just the big Jackie Robinsons of the world, uh, but the, the people in their local levels, the micro stories of these small communities that created these trickle effects of Dresden, Ontario being this quintessential spot in our, the rights that we all enjoy in Canada. Uh, people don't know these things. And there's a great importance for understanding why we got to these points uh, so that we don't repeat, you know, that the, the right. history repeats itself, but we don't want this, <laughs> this exact case to do that. Yeah. yeah. And I, that's too, one of the beautiful things about sports too, is that, yeah, there's the guys out there who are making $50 million a year playing. Sure. But that does not represent even close to the majority of sports or what the power of sport is uh, really the, the majority of it is people just going out and playing and building community on their own, but it does lead to to this question. I'll get you out of here on this. You write about sports. This is what you do. And one of the things that I've, I've had sports writers tell me before, they don't care who wins. They don't care who loses. They care for a good story and a fast game. And that's really all they care about. <laughs> but for you, like, how does this shape the way you now look at sports? Has going through this process, doing this research, writing this book, has that influenced the way you think about, write about, contemporary sports and the significance of the the games on the ice and what happens off the ice has this really reframed your career to a certain extent absolutely when i started sports writing it was reporting the games and the successes and things and over time i developed a much more critical lens um, where i recognized the power that these games have to distract us from big issues to be a platform to talk about big issues uh, where we see the racist oppression that might occur, whether or not it's, you know, something like the murder of George Floyd echoed throughout sport, where we see protests afterwards, uh, the Colin Kaepernick's of the world, you know, that system, what, what Kaepernick did there could be echoed by the Muhammad Ali's of the world. And, many of those people that we talk about that are historic figures, but also, you know, it's echoed by the Chatham colored all-stars and what they did and the, uh, their ability to overcome oppression. And that's in the title of the book itself on account of darkness comes from the fact that uh, in that championship game, they were about two outs away from winning the provincial title. And at 4 PM in the afternoon, the umpires put their hands in the air and called the game on account of darkness. And if you hear the the recollections of the players afterwards and their family members, they'll tell you very clearly that the only fact that it was too dark, the only reason it was too dark on the baseball field was because there was nine black baseball players on the field. Uh, it was very much still daylight. And, um, you know, so when we look at what's going on in sport today, when we look at the gaps between the racism that we see in hockey, let's say, it's tied to the fact that arenas were segregated. It's tied to the fact that, um, you know, in swimming that that pools were segregated and we can't separate those items today and just ignore them and tell people to stick to sports because there are real human beings playing those games and those games have a real cultural and societal impact on how we view issues, whether or not athletes stand up and use their platforms to discuss those issues. Um, or whether or not, you know, as the term might be nowadays, we are sport washing history. Right. And uh, yeah, it's a very well said and a very good reason to go check out the book. It is On Account of Darkness, Shining Light on Race and Sport. As you said, it looks at 
athletes from the Chatham-Kent region, but certainly touches on issues that are broader than just within the community and things that go on around the world, really. So, Ian, if people want to get a copy of the book, what's the best way for them to do so and to keep up with all the other writing that you got going on? Well, you can, uh, of course, order it right through my publishing company, TidewaterPress.ca, if you want to support an independent uh, Canadian company. But you can also buy it from online at Indigo or Chapters, uh, Amazon, just about anywhere you get your books. Uh, you can walk into your local bookstore, and if they don't have it on their shelves, they can order it in for you um, anywhere that you want to get them. Uh, you can get them. In terms of my own writing, uh, you're probably best to follow me on Twitter if you have it at Ian Kennedy CK. Or, uh, you know, you can read the hockey news. I'm, I'm now running a brand new uh, arm of the hockey news called the Hockey News Women's, which we are only writing about women's hockey to try and break another one of those barriers that exists, uh, um, which is, of course, that gender barrier that's out there, too. But uh, that's my main spot. Uh, you can find some of my more critical articles with Yahoo Sports. Uh, the Globe and Mail, Toronto Star, The Guardian. You can you can look them up and, and you're going to find something where I've uh, discussed one of these issues uh, ongoing. So with respect to the hockey news and the women, we'll, we'll get this in real quick. Uh, is the United States against Canada in women's hockey the best rivalry in sports? Like, Because I, I honestly can't think it of is. one that is bit like a longer term, more heated. Like it's, you know, 25 years at this point that they're the best two teams and really go at each other when they play. So I can't think of a better one. It is amazing to watch. I was at the world championships this year in Brampton, Ontario, and watching those games played, you really don't know what's going to happen until the dying minutes of any game. It, it is a coin toss every single time. And the emotions are so high the tenseness that you can just feel in the arena from every single person there. It's an edge of your seat game. But the, the really exciting portion of that is that the other countries are coming and it, we can now see through the growth of professional women's hockey and NCAA and U sports hockey that they are coming. Czechia this year won their second consecutive bronze and gave some really tough games to those two teams. Sweden took Canada to overtime. Uh, it is coming and uh, that that sport is growing. But currently, I cannot think of a better one myself that year after year is just this nail biter game that nobody can predict. And uh, it's it's flip flopped every year. So it, my opinion, yeah, definitely the best rivalry in sports. Yeah, it's just uh, yeah, must watch uh, when, when it comes on at the World Championship and certainly at the Olympics uh, as well. So check all that out. We will link to everything down in the show notes, to the book, uh, to uh, Ian's Twitter. Uh, to the hockey news as well. So check it all out. Uh, Ian Kennedy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Sean. So there you have it, my chat with Ian Kennedy. I thank him again for his time. And with that, let's get right to today's historical headline of the week, which this week comes from Forbes from Richard McGahee on February 13, 2023, entitled The Super Bowl Racism and Segregation which was published the day after the Super Bowl between the Philadelphia Eagles and the Kansas City Chiefs. And this was the first time where two black starting quarterbacks faced each other, that being Patrick Mahomes for the Kansas City Chiefs and Jalen Hurts for the Philadelphia Eagles. And in this article, McGahee goes through the challenges that black quarterbacks have historically faced within the National Football League, 
a lot of which was based off of racist concepts of intellect and who could understand the complex offenses of the National Football League. While noting at the same time that this this push in football to dismantle some of these racist tropes, stereotypes, needs to lead towards challenging broader forms of systemic racism, in particular with segregation. And he goes through in this article, does Richard McGahee, looking at the way in which the United States is becoming increasingly segregated. There is a divide, uh, a racial divide in housing policy and housing in general in the United States. So he sets that against the two black starting quarterbacks in the National Football League. It really is a very interesting analysis of what's going on and how sports can be a leading force in addressing these wider systemic issues. So today's historical headline of the week is Richard McGahee in Forbes, the Super Bowl, Racism and Segregation. And with that, I will say thank you so much for listening, everybody. If you have not yet, please do subscribe. We are back from our hiatus and we'll be with you throughout the summer into the fall. Looking forward to it. We've got some great stuff teed up for you, some of which is already recorded. So I am very much looking forward to sharing that with everybody. Of course, if you want to let me know what you want to hear on the show, it's oldestnews at gmail.com. You can follow along on Twitter at what's old is news. And do all the likes, comments, all that stuff. Helps other people find the show. Tell other people what we got going on. Helps us grow the show. And of course, head on over to activehistory.ca. A lot of great written content over there in the past couple months that I think you will very much enjoy. So with that, I will say thank you again for listening. We'll be back with you again next week for more What's Old is News.